0: Well, good morning again, everyone. Um, such a privilege to be able to preach uh, today in addition to getting to lead worship. Um, Bryce is sharing uh, the pulpit uh, a lot of times over the coming weeks, um, so uh, you've seen the last of him from this location for a while, um, so I hope nobody's ex- too excited about that. Uh, but today you get me, uh, next week you get Stephen, uh, then we get some, uh, some guests um, after that, and then Stephen and I will go again. And then Bryce will be back in the pulpit uh, in August. Um, so he's getting, getting a nice uh, break. But it's a privilege uh, for us to get to preach. Uh, you know, we, we usually do some sort of a summer series to focus on something different. And, and then, of course, this summer we chose spiritual disciplines, which we're calling Disciplines of Grace. And hopefully uh, this summer series will... Um, probably not give you any new information but give you some information that will help you draw near to God and to pursue the fullness of joy uh, that he offers us um, and if, if we do these things hopefully they'll, they'll uh, benefit us spiritually um, today is our third uh, s- uh, sermon in our disciplines of grace summer sermon series uh, of course we are looking at spiritual disciplines we're looking at what they mean we're looking at how to practice these spiritual disciplines um, how that we can cultivate them in our lives so that we would know Christ more. And again, for, for a lot of you, especially if you've been a Christian for a while, um, very little of what you will hear this summer will be altogether new information. Um, in fact, for those of you who are seasoned in the faith, a lot of what you're going to hear this summer is probably pretty elementary um, because you may already be doing the things uh, or that, that we're talking about or at least know a lot about the things that we're talking about. However, um, I suspect that we all probably need to be reminded periodically of what is good for us and why it is good for us. Um, and we probably need to be challenged periodically to examine how that we can recommit to these habits for the sake of our uh, spiritual growth. I mean, we know what's healthy for our bodies, right? Exercise, uh, enough sleep, um, eating right, Um but we don't always do those things. Even if we're committed to them, um, we fall out of habits because bad habits are always crouching at the door. Um, to re- In fact, it's, it tends to be that if you aren't intentional about those things, the default is a bad habit, right? You, for most of us, the default is not the good habit. Um, and so even the things that we know, it can be helpful to be reminded of those things um, so that we can uh, quit neglecting the good habits. Um, And we can reject the bad habits, and we can replace those so that we don't let our guard down. Um, And so our hope this summer is that you are given sort of a new resolution, um, a spiritual energy boost to encourage you, uh, to, as, as we're exhorted to in Hebrews 12, to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and to run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. So hopefully you'll be, you'll be better equipped to run that race this summer with endurance. <clears throat> now saying that, um, I want to say a little bit about what we're not trying to, to encourage you to do this summer. Uh, as um, Protestant uh, evangelical Christians, uh, here at Vintage, we rightly emphasize the biblical truth that we are saved by grace through faith. Right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no, uh, no man may boast. This is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, that we are saved by grace through faith alone, right? Nothing that we can do contributes to our salvation. In fact, nothing about our salvation is based on anything that we have done or anything that we could do. The basis of our salvation, of course, is the finished work of Jesus on the cross, who died for our sins, and who was raised from the dead. And we know this, and we celebrate this often, as we should. And yet I think sometimes, if we're not careful, we can be tempted to think that even though we know that our justification, which is our being made right with God, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, I think sometimes we can fall into a track of, trap of thinking that after that, that initial sort of entry point, that justification, that after that we've got to get ourselves right. We've got to live a pious life because now we are Christians and we better act like it, right? We are supposed to work hard at, at being Christian. And while it's true that the desire to walk in obedience, the desire to pursue righteousness, to make choices that honor God, those are good and God-honoring desires that hopefully are a result of our sanctification. But we need to remember that just like our justification is not based on works, we don't earn sanctification based on works either. Right? Sanctification is the, the ongoing process of the Holy Spirit of God making us more like Jesus. And of course, that, that works out through our lives, but we don't earn our sanctification through those works. The, uh, sanctification is a work of God in us just like justification is. Now, of course, we do have to daily crucify our flesh. We have to lay down our lives as living sacrifices, as we looked at in Romans 12. But the goal of being a living sacrifice is not works-based piety. It is grace-motivated joy. And so I hope that we're not equipping you with a list of things to do to make you feel like you're a better person, but that we will equip you this summer to pursue the Lord. And that He would do the work of sanctification in you as a result of what you're equipped with this summer. Um, Another name that we considered for this uh, series, we ended up going with disciplines of grace, really as a reminder that these are works of grace in us. right? These aren't works of piety. They are works of grace. Another name that we considered briefly was habits of joy. Because we pursue God and we do the things that lead us closer to Him, not because it makes us good, or because we want to feel better about ourselves or look good in the eyes of others. But because we have been made good. We have, been, we, we have the imputed righteousness of the blood of the Lamb. And because of that, the grace that He has shown us draws us then to spend our lives and to, in the pursuit of Him and His glory and His purposes. And so this summer, as we are equipped with these disciplines, whether they're new to you or not, may grace be the motivation for these disciplines and not the other way around. Don't get it mixed up, church. We pursue these disciplines so that we can pursue the Lord, not to earn favor with Him. Now, another thing I want to mention before we get into today's topic is a little bit about uh, the, the word discipline. Now, it's a word with... Interesting connotations, depending on the context in which you use the word discipline. Now, my guess is, when most of us hear the word discipline, we often think about what? Yes. But right, punishment, right? Most of us associate discipline with punishment. And especially depending on your upbringing, Drew answered really fast, so maybe the level of discipline observed as a youth helps you what you associate with that in your mind discipline might bring up some not so happy thoughts for you when you hear that word but do you know what the word discipline actually means now of course it is associated with punishment because punishment is a teacher but discipline actually means teaching or training in fact the word discipline comes from the Latin word for instruction it's actually based on the Latin root discipulus That's definitely how you say that. I'm 100% sure. Just kidding. Um, That is the Latin word for pupil or learner. Or it could be translated as studier. Now, do you know what other word has that same Latin root? The word disciple. Because a disciple is one who learns. A disciple is a studier of instruction. A disciple is one who practices instruction disciplines so may we not miss the necessary link between being a true disciple of christ and being a person who pursues the disciplines that teach us to become more like him and so today as disciples of christ who are pursuing these disciplines that hopefully will lead us into the joy that god offers us today the discipline that we're going to look at is fasting as i mentioned earlier Coincidentally, the fasting sermon fell on Father's Day, and so good for you if you forgot to make plans with Dad today. You can just tell him we discussed fasting at church, so we're just gonna we're just gonna skip lunch, or we're gonna we're gonna pursue the Lord together through fasting. You don't, you're off the hook today. Um, so today uh, we're learning about fasting, <clears throat> and my guess is of all the spiritual disciplines that we will look at together this summer. This is probably the one that most of us are the least familiar with. Um, I would assume that it's probably the one, I could be wrong, that most of us practice the least. Um, And quite frankly, it's like, it's the weirdest one. I mean, you don't don't get a lot of gospel tracts that are like, confess your sins, place your faith in Jesus, come to saving faith in Him, and then guess what, we're going to skip meals sometimes. You know that doesn't really that doesn't sell well. It's kind of it's kind of strange. Um and quite frankly it's not a practice that you usually pick up unless you are intentional about it. Um you know there are other practices that we do like you know like prayer and even like feasting and you know things like that. Uh reading the bible that you're going to have some exposure to um if you're just around believers. But you can Some believers go their whole lives and never never worry about fasting, never do it. Because it's something that you have to be really intentional about. So today, let's do that. Let's be intentional. Let's look at what the scripture says about fasting. And let's look at how we can better incorporate this habit into our lives. Hopefully for the glory of the Lord. Before we do that, let's pray. God, we thank you that your word has equipped us with everything that we need for life and for godliness. And God, that you give us these exercises, these habits to draw us into the joy that you offer us. God, thank you that we see these practiced even by your son when he walked this earth. God, may you make us more like him in the power of your spirit. God, would you help us to remember that um, you do that for your glory. Lord, not to just make us feel better about ourselves. Not to give us a sense of self-righteous piety. God, but because you are gracious and loving. God because you offer us joy beyond measure. So God, I pray that as we pursue these disciplines as we learn more about fasting even today, God that you would teach us dependence on you. God, help us to remember that we have our all of our provision in you. Lord, and we need you more than we need food, more than we need water, more than we need life or breath. We need you, O oh Lord. And God, may that helplessness cause us to fall upon you. God, and to rejoice in what you have done for us and what you offer us by the blood of Christ on the cross and your spirit that empowers us. God, do your sanctifying work in our hearts as we uh, learn more about what your word says this day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So fasting. I was trying to figure out how to approach this topic. And, um, you know, typically the way we do sermon series at Vintage, um, we, we take a chunk of scripture and we just exegete, you know, going through it. Um, and this is a more topical sermon um, because we're looking at a, something that is very embedded in scripture, but it's in a lot of different places. And so today, as far as the structure of the sermon goes, I didn't get super creative for you. Um, we're just going to amp- answer some simple questions today about fasting. And I'm going to try uh, my best to answer these based on what scripture teaches. And so much like a journalist might approach a topic, um, we're going to examine four questions today about fasting. We're going to first ask, what is fasting? Then why should we fast? When should we fast? And how should we fast? And so let's look at the first question. We'll just jump right in here. Uh, The first thing we're going to look at today is what is fasting? Now, this will be the easiest and probably the shortest point. Uh, that we cover today. I just want to give you a definition. Uh, fasting is the intentional, short-term, self-deprivation of something, most often food, that's intended to be an edifying spiritual discipline. Now, when I speak of fasting today, I'm not referring to a uh, sort of health, uh, a dietary practice that some people do for their physical health. Um, that is can be a good thing, whatever. We're talking about a spiritual discipline of fasting. And as an aside, um, did you know the word breakfast literally means to break fast, the fast through the night, right? You eat the meal in the morning to break the fast that you've had for the last, you know, however many hours since your midnight snack. Um, and so, so all of you who do, uh, you know, fasting for uh, health reasons or, or maybe you call it inter- intermittent fasting, which is what normal people just call skipping breakfast, um, that's great. <laughs> Maybe that sort of health practice has uh, health benefits, um, but what we are discussing today is a spiritual practice, um, and it's not the same same thing as fasting for spiritual uh, or excuse me for physical health reasons. And you know maybe it's possible for the two of those things to overlap. That's probably a separate conversation that I'm not going to cover. I mean, it's, maybe it's possible that you can skip a meal both for your health and for your uh, spiritual nourishment too. Um, but today, what we are focusing on is fasting for spiritual reasons. Um, we also are not talking about going without something because you don't have enough of something, right? So if someone can't afford food and so they miss a meal, that isn't the same as fasting. You know, I can't, um, I can't fast from flying in my private jet because I don't have a private jet, right? Um, and so <clears throat> we're talking about the intentional going without something that you do have, Um, not because you lack that thing. In fact, um, if we have something and we intentionally lay aside indulging in that something in order to pursue God, that is considered fasting. And when we encounter fasting in the Bible, which we're going to look at a bunch of examples of that today, as far as I can tell, um, when the Bible mentions fasting, it's pretty much always talking about giving up food. Now, don't you know, don't mishear me, people can give up other things for the glory of the Lord. Um, And some people consider that fasting. And um, even things like a modified diet like Daniel did, uh, you know, where he only ate vegetables and water, that can be considered a type of fast. And I think God can certainly be honored anytime we give up something. I mean, obviously sin, we lay down sin. But anytime we even give up good things that we enjoy for the sake of drawing closer to God, I think God can be honored in that. But just to keep it simple today, based on what I've looked at in Scripture, let's just assume when I say fasting today, what we're talking about is um, intentionally not eating for a specified period of time. Um, and, and for the purpose of spiritual growth, right? Again, not for just for health reasons. So, again, there's, there's a lot more we could talk about about fasting. Today we're talking about um, not eating uh, for, the, for the glory of the Lord uh, for a particular period of time. So that's what fasting is, or at least how we're going to define it today, and how I see it most clearly defined in Scripture. I and mean, There's not like a definition in Scripture, but most of the time it's practiced. I think that's what it's talking about in Scripture. And so, second, let's look at why we should fast. And maybe the first question we should ask is, should we fast? Like, is there a, do Christians need to fast at all? You know, some people think that um, fasting is really sort of an Old Testament practice. And so it doesn't have application for Christians today. Um, Other people think that fasting is too embedded in the practices uh, and the traditions of like the Roman Catholic Church um, or churches that practice things like Lent where they do do fasting. Um, And so some people think that fasting is not for Protestant Christians. However, um, not only do we see fasting commanded by God and practiced by God's people, in the old testament which is very clear we also see it throughout the new testament we see it practiced by jesus himself we see fasting practiced by the early church and if you look back at church history we see fasting practiced by believers throughout the last two millennia and so perhaps a better question to ask is why why wouldn't we fast i mean the tradition of our faith includes fasting at at times And fasting is clearly a regular spiritual discipline that is taught by Scripture and it's expected of God's people. Notice uh, in the passage that Alexi read for us earlier, Jesus says, when you fast. Jesus presumes that you will, that it is a spiritual discipline that believers are expected to do. So let's, let's look at why. In that same passage, Jesus says that where your treasure is, there your heart Will be also. And so Jesus then demonstrates an inexplicable link between fasting and finding our satisfaction in God. Hunger, when we feel those hunger pains, they can reorient our desires toward the one who really satisfies us. John Piper echoes this purpose. He says, When you give a gift to Christ, like fasting, it's a way of saying, The joy that I pursue is not the hope of getting rich with things from you. By giving to you what you do not need and what I might enjoy, I'm saying more earnestly and more authentically, you are my treasure, not these things. And that applies to more than just fasting, of course. God is our treasure, not the things that we have, not even food and drink, which are, which are blessings. They are good things from God. And even those blessings are not our treasure, but the one who created them is. Jesus alone is the provider of all that we need. Jesus is the satisfier of the longings of our souls. Years ago, when Lindsay and I were considering um, her uh, quitting her full-time job as a teacher so that she could stay home with our ki- uh, to teach our kids, we were really anxious about that um, because it was, a, it was a major household pay cut for us. And so we decided uh, to pursue the Lord, and I, I fasted, and I prayed Um, and God led me to Matthew 6 that I read for you earlier. Jesus says, Look at the birds. Do they worry about what they will eat? Look at the lilies. Do they worry about what they will wear? Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? See, through fasting and prayer in that situation, Lindsay and I remember that God's provision is good, and it is enough. As we come to, the, to realize the sufficiency of God's provision then, our prayers kind of shifted from give us this day our daily bread, which is a biblical prayer, that's the right way to pray. But as you realize that God is going to do that, the prayer transformed into God, we know that you will give us our daily bread. We know that your provision is good and that it is timely and that it is perfect. So God, help us to trust in your provision, to believe that your grace is sufficient And to have absolute faith that we can trust in your provision. See, fasting then is meant to be a reorientation of our hungers. That's meant to point us toward the kinds of desires that actually need satisfying. Ironically, if you've ever fasted or if you ever do, fasting often feels more like slowing. Because it gives us time to reflect upon and change our perspective on what we think we need. There is something that about the hunger pains of this, you know, temporarily low blood sugar. You know, you, know, you know what it feels like to have hunger pains. Something about that can point us to the spiritual reality of being blood bought by Christ, the only one who grants absolutely every provision. And so, why do we fast? To reorient our hungers toward Christ. So, let's spend some time considering when should we fast. And that's sort of tied into why. We're going to look at more of the purpose in specific scenarios. Now, the best way to answer the question about when we should fast is to look at what the Bible says. When people fasted in the Bible and what was going on around their circumstances. Now, there are way more examples in the Bible of fasting that we're, than we're going to actually look at today. But we are going to spend some time looking at a handful of them so that we can see when fasting is appropriate. So, one of the earliest examples that we see in the Bible of fasting is Moses. And Moses sets a wild precedent for, for fasting. See, you remember we went through Exodus. God had delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, led them across the Red Sea, and then they arrived at Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up on Mount Sinai uh, for 40 days and for 40 nights. And he receives the second stone copy of the covenant of God with Israel. Because if you remember, he had already gone up there and he came back down and they were worshiping the golden calf. And Moses, you know, busted those because he threw them down because he was um, really upset. Um, And so anyway, Moses goes back up the mountain 40 days and 40 nights with God. And for 40 days and 40 nights, Moses fasted. Exodus thirty-four twenty-eight says: says, So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now Moses had been with God for 40 days and 40 nights in a way that you and I can scarcely imagine. In fact, Exodus 33, 11 says the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. I mean, can you imagine that? The communion, the intimacy that Moses shared with God there, that he was able to go without food and water for nearly six weeks. Let me say as an aside, we'll talk more about this on some practical application later. If you're considering fasting for the first time, this this is not the precedent you want to go with for the first go-round. You will die. I' um, just saying so you know, but Moses did not, because the Lord sustained him for, for nearly six weeks. The Lord supernaturally sustained Moses on Mount Sinai. The Lord spoke with Moses and communed with Moses in a unique way. And I would imagine that apart from Christ himself, this account is probably the most intimate relationship between God and man that we see in the Bible. Moses' very sustenance was, the presence of God himself, for nearly six weeks. And so for Moses, on top of Mount Sinai, the purpose of fasting was to intimately dwell in the presence of God. Now, of course, Moses could have heard from God without fasting. and We see that a lot of other times. Like Moses and God talk a lot, and he does, he's not fasting every time. But giving up food and water was a way for Moses to demonstrate that God was all he needed. And so, God, so Moses found nourishment for his body and nourishment for his soul in the presence of God himself there at the top of Mount Sinai. Another example we see uh, of someone who was intimate with God and fasted uh, was David. Um, now the example we're going to look at is quite different here. Um, this is after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And he had been confronted uh, by the prophet Nathan about this sin of adultery with Bathsheba. And uh, also the sin of essentially murder to cover uh, this adultery up. And the Bible says that uh, after that, Bathsheba gave birth to David's son. And it says the son became sick because the Lord afflicted him. I want to pick up the story in 2 Samuel 12, 15. It says this. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and did he not listen to us? How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. (laughs) Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went up into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. David said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. See, for David, the purpose of fasting was to mourn and to plead with God. And ultimately, God did not grant David's request. But David was humbled before God. Ultimately, he did not receive what he fasted and pleaded for, which was the life of his child. And yet, the practice of David's fasting showed us that in his repentance for his sin, he understood that God was sovereign. And he learned to trust in God's will. We see another example of fasting in the book of Ezra. Now, Ezra Ezra was a scribe and a priest, and he called uh, the first example of this that we're going to look at today really a collective fast, a fast of God's people for a very different reason. Now, God's people at the time uh, in the Old Testament were in exile under the Persian Empire. But the Persian king had allowed the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem. But the journey back to Jerusalem was not a safe journey. There was um, all these... Ways for them to be in danger from, from criminals and everything else. So they were exiles headed back to their homeland, but without any kind of military guard. And so they were susceptible to uh, quite a number of dangers on this journey to Jerusalem. And so Ezra says in Ezra eight twenty one, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, river that we might humble ourselves before our God, to seek from Him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. See, for Ezra, the purpose of fasting was to humble God's people and to implore God for his protection. And unlike in David's case... God did grant the request of Ezra. He responded favorably to their plea. Fasting showed the people of God um, their dependence on God's mercy. And it showed them their helplessness without God. They could be guaranteed, or excuse me, they could not be guaranteed that God would grant their request. But Ezra knew, as we should, that confessing our dependence on God is a prerequisite for surrendering to the mercy of God. See, fasting was a way in this case to demonstrate... Complete and utter dependence upon God. Not long after that, um, the book of Esther gives us an example of a collective fast. Around that same time, in fact, the story of Esther takes place while God's people are under Persian rule. And if you remember that story, um, I won't tell you the whole thing, but basically the Persian king apparently got mad at his wife uh, for not obeying him. So the Persian king gets rid of his wife. He basically has a beauty pageant to pick a new queen. And eventually, he picks this beautiful young Jewish girl named Esther to be the new queen. Um, And meanwhile, uh, the king has this uh, corrupt advisor named Haman who gets mad at uh, this Jewish guy named Mordecai. who And Mordecai was Esther's cousin. He was basically like her father. And Mordecai wouldn't bow down to Haman. So you have to read the whole story. It's not that long. But basically, Haman plans to take out his anger against Mordecai by committing genocide. Um, he wants to wipe out all the Jews uh, under the king's rule. Uh, and he gets the king to agree to this genocide. Um, and But the king doesn't, doesn't realize at the time that his new queen, Esther, was also a Jew. So he wants to wipe out her people, but he doesn't realize that's her people. And so Mordecai, who is like sort of like Esther's dad, he finds out about this evil plot and he... And he Uh, um, goes to Esther through a messenger and asks her to go to the king so that she can avert this disaster, uh, that she can plead with him to rescue God's people. And Esther 4.13 says, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And so Esther asked God's people to fast for three days on her behalf um, so that she could then hopefully plead with the king to rescue them. So for Esther, the purpose of fasting was to plead for God's intervention and God's favor. And in this case, like with Ezra, God granted that request. After the fast, Esther pleads with the king and he stops Haman's plan to commit genocide. And Haman, in fact, was even hanged that very day. So the fasting allowed them to implore God for intervention and favor. And God granted that request. We see another example in the book of Jonah um, where uh, you, you probably are familiar with the story of Jonah. As you probably remember, he was a prophet who was called to go to a place called Nineveh. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. Um, so he got on a boat to, uh, to a place called Tarshish. Tarsus. Um, and uh, So he basically did exactly the opposite of what God commanded him to do. Um, And, of course, Jonah's attempt to run from God uh, and what God had commanded him to do did not go so well, if you remember. God brought a major storm on the boat that Jonah was on, and they realized that the storm was a result of Jonah's disobedience. So Jonah goes overboard. uh, He's swallowed by a well, or the Bible actually says a great fish, so it might have been a big shark. Who knows? He spent three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. He prayed to God, he repented, and the fish threw him up on the shore. And then he finally did what God told him to do originally, which is go to Nineveh and preach um, this message of warning to the people to repent. He took the the long way around to ultimately do what God told him to do, um, and it was a lot harder than it had to be. So eventually Jonah goes to Nineveh as he's originally called to And he tells the people of Nineveh that God was going to overthrow the city if they did not repent. And I want to read to you what happened in Jonah 3, uh, starting in verse 5. It says, The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, for the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And the the ending of that story is good. Actually, the actual ending of that story is not good because Jonah is really mad that actually God showed mercy to the people of Nineveh. But that's another story. Um, The people of Nineveh fasted in repentance. And they pleaded with God to spare them from his judgment. And that's exactly what God did. For the people of Nineveh, the act of fasting was an act of turning away from their evil ways and turning toward God. And God had compassion on the people. He spared them from His wrath, and they were then rescued. The act of fasting is not what saved the people of Nineveh, but it is, but it was God's compassion that saved them. It was indicative of their change of hearts. Fasting was an act of repentance. And so God rescued the people. So there's several Old Testament examples for you. But we also see fasting in the New Testament. Um, the best example is Jesus himself. Um, probably the best known example of fasting in the New Testament is when Jesus is in the desert. Uh, right? He gets baptized and then he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Where he fasted like Moses did on Sinai for 40 days and for 40 nights. Matthew 4 says Jesus was led uh, by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, you might think. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, of course, Jesus, because he had laid aside his divinity and took on human flesh, he was hungry after 40 days. And yet, despite this, Jesus was prepared for the tempter, even to resist the bread that his body craved so much. So for Jesus, the purpose of fasting, of course, it wasn't repentance. It wasn't to implore God. He was God. But it was to demonstrate that he, too, lived dependent upon God's grace alone. He did not need what Satan offered him because he was sustained by the power of God. Fasting was not only a way for Jesus to dwell intimately with his Father, but also it prepared him to be able to say to the tempter when he kept tempting him, at the end he says, Be gone, Satan. Fasting drew Jesus into communion with his Father. And that's the place where the enemy has no power, church. So for Jesus, the purpose of fasting was to demonstrate his dependence upon God alone and to prepare him for temptation. We also see fasting done by the early church leaders. And this is the last example we'll look at. Um, In the book of Acts, when the early church um, needed to appoint elders and to send out missionaries, every time you see them commissioning someone, you also see them fasting and praying for God's guidance. Acts 13 gives an example of this. It says uh, in verse 2, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And we see the same exact thing in Acts 14, the next chapter. Verse 23 says, When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So when the leaders of the early church were called to set apart leaders, they didn't do this flippantly. They fasted as a way to make those important decisions with sober judgment. The appointment of leaders was not something to do without deep consideration and pursuing the Lord's will. And so for them, fasting was a symbol of the reverence that they uh, brought to this deliberation as they committed their plans to the Lord and sought His guidance. So they could have sober judgment in making these decisions. And so that was a lot of examples. When do we fast? To recap in the Bible, God's people fasted for a lot of reasons. They fasted to intimately dwell in the presence of God. To mourn and to plead with God, to express humility, to implore God for protection, to plead for God's intervention and favor, to express repentance, to plead for God's mercy, to demonstrate dependence on God alone, and to make important decisions with reverence and humility. And so we've looked at what fasting is, why we should do it, when we should do it. Now let's look at some practical considerations as we end and answer the question how should we fast? Now, we can obviously learn a lot about how to fast from all these biblical examples that we've already looked at, but there's a couple of places in the Bible that give some specific directions about uh, how to fast, and really more specifically, they tell you how not to do it. One of these examples uh, is from the prophet Isaiah. Uh, In the examples of fasting that we've already looked at, uh, in some cases people plead with God and God grants the request. And in other cases, people plead with God and He does not grant the request. Well, by the time Isaiah, the prophet, comes around, God's people are familiar with the practice of fasting. But they've fallen into the mistaken belief that they could fast, they could do pious deeds in order to try and coerce God, to manipulate God into doing what they wanted, like He's a cosmic vending machine. And so... When the people then fast and they don't get the answer that they are seeking, they get angry because they think, oh, we fasted and it didn't work. And so Isaiah confronts that sort of hypocrisy in Isaiah 58. He's quoting uh, the people here in verse 3. They say, Why have we fasted and you see it not? Talking to God. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And then this is Isaiah. Behold, in the day of your fast, Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and He will say, Here I am. See, the people are asking God why He hasn't acknowledged their fasting. Why didn't it work? Why didn't God give them what they wanted? They say to God, Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? They're basically saying, God, don't you see how humble we are? I mean, we're fasting and everything. I mean, wouldn't you agree that we're the most humble people ever, God? Well, here's a clue. If you have to point out to God how humble you're being, perhaps you aren't being humble at all. So if you want to know how to fast, this is a great example of what not to do. We don't do it as an expression of false humility that says, look how pious I am. I even gave up breakfast today for the Lord. No, that is not why we fast. That's not the type of fast that is acceptable to the Lord. The fast that is acceptable to God, Isaiah says, looses the bonds of wickedness. It undoes the straps of the yoke. It lets the oppressed go free. It breaks every yoke. When we fast with true humility, not for our own gain, Isaiah says His light breaks forth like the dawn. His healing springs up speedily. His righteousness goes before us. The glory of the Lord shall be our guard. And then when we call on the Lord through fasting in humility, the Lord will answer. We shall cry and he will say, here I am. Church, that is good news. That when we confess our dependence on God, he does all of those things for us. Lastly, I want to look at the passage that we read, that Lexi read for us at the very beginning today. The most concise passage about fasting in the Bible is in Matthew 6. And Jesus gives specific instructions on how to fast in Matthew six sixteen through 18. He says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, these are pretty straightforward instructions. And they echo what we just looked at in Isaiah. That fasting is not meant to be seen by others. It isn't to make ourselves appear pious or humble. In fact, fasting should be done secretly according to Jesus. Now, we see that there's biblical precedent for collective fast. But if you're fasting on your own, you don't tell people about it. The Bible says it's a secret act of humbly pursuing the Lord in faith and dependence. John Piper says that fasting is not first offered to God that we might be paid back because of it. It is first given by God that we might benefit from it and that He might be glorified through it. Now it's interesting if you read uh, Matthew 6, this passage that we looked at about fasting is just after the Lord's Prayer. And in the Lord's Prayer we're taught to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And then Jesus says, when you fast... And then this passage comes just before the command to not lay up for ourselves treasures on earth, but to lay up treasures in heaven. And I think the context matters here. There's clearly a connection between looking to what we have and what we need to be physically sustained, our daily bread, and yet not looking to our daily bread as our ultimate treasure. For what we truly need most of all is not what sustains our bodies but it is what sustains our souls. The grace of God offered to us freely because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. So indeed, fasting is not an act of piety. It is a discipline of grace. So, just a couple of recommendations for you. If you want to begin to incorporate fasting into your pursuit of God, I've got just a couple things for you. And these are my thoughts. Whenever you are faced with any of the situations we discussed earlier... Or any time you want to pursue God more intimately um, so that you can seek His will, so that you can plead with Him, so that you can seek guidance on something that's important. Fasting can and often should be a go-to spiritual discipline for us. Now, many Christians even incorporate fasting regularly into their habits of pursuing God. Maybe they do it once a week or whatever, even without a special reason. You don't have to have a special reason to fast. Uh, Also, you don't have to be a Christian for decades before you fast. Um, you don't have to wait for an overwhelming special call to fast. Right? The, we see it evidenced in the Bible. Um, if you want to earnestly seek the Lord about something, and I assume that that's true for all of us at one time or another, fasting can be appropriate. And so you don't have to overthink it. You just do it. right? We see it in the Bible a lot. And now if you've never fasted before... Um, Again, I certainly wouldn't recommend your first fast being for 40 days. Um, That's only a couple times in the Bible. It's in very special circumstances. God supernaturally sustains the person fasting in those situations. Most of the time, uh, fasting is a lot shorter term than that. Um, It's a short-term practice. Uh, Even if it's done regularly, it's usually a short-term practice. And so the best way to begin uh, to incorporate fasting into your spiritual life, is just start with a single meal. You don't have to go a whole day. You can go a single meal Um, ideally it wouldn't be a meal that you're going to skip anyway like if you're not a person who eats breakfast and you call that a fast that's again that's not choosing to do that for spiritual reasons necessarily Um, but if you're like me um, skipping meals is not really something you do by accident Uh, that has to be a choice Um, and so uh, if you want to fast pick a meal that you would have eaten otherwise but that you can intentionally go without Right, don't skip somebody's rehearsal dinner you know, because you want to fast. Um, one thing you may have noticed in pretty much all of the biblical passages that we looked at today on fasting is that fasting pretty much always goes along with what? Prayer. Right? It says they fasted and prayed, fasted and prayed. They pretty much always go together. And so if the, if the goal of fasting is to pursue God deeply and our means of communing with God is prayer... It makes sense that you typically don't have one without the other. And we're going to look at prayer more deeply uh, at another sermon this summer. But when you choose a meal to fast from, I recommend using the time that you would have spent eating in prayer. Uh, Like intentionally just replace eating time with prayer time. Um, And pray the whole time so that you can um, spend that time pursuing the Lord. Um, I know for me, the times that I've done this, like lunchtime works well for this. And, you know, depending on what you do during the day, it may not be great for you, but I know a lot of people have lunchtime carved out in the middle of the day. Um, And so that can be a great time to not eat and spend that time pursuing the Lord in prayer when we usually would be eating. However you choose to incorporate fasting into your spiritual life, let us remember, as I mentioned at the very beginning, Fasting doesn't earn you favor with God. Um, One author wrote that fasting places no obligation upon the sovereign God to respond in the way we have asked. Yet he does take special delight in us when we show our helplessness in fasting. And he will respond by giving us a greater knowledge of himself, a deep sense of our dependence on his grace, and maybe even the specific request we bring to him. See, when we go about without food, we feel our helplessness. And this can remind us of our helplessness on our own, right? Because apart from the grace of God, we are indeed helpless. And we need to be reminded regularly of how much we need God. Fasting can remind us, as the Apostle Paul wrote, that God said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So as we pursue the Lord through these disciplines together, may this indeed be true for us, that we might learn to cultivate these habits that show us the grace of God so that they might lead us more fully into the joy of the Lord. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for your grace. God, that you demonstrate it clearly to us in your word. God, that you sustain us by it. God, I pray that you would cultivate in us habits that... Teach us dependence upon you. God, that you would help us to realize that even more than food and drink, we need you, O Lord. God, help us to not idolize even the good things that you have blessed us with. But God, help us to um, realize how helpless we are apart from you. God, help us to practice these habits that draw us into your presence more. And God, help us to remember that as we do these things, Lord, we don't do them out of piety, out of uh, an attempt to earn favor with you, out of an attempt to uh, puff ourselves up, make ourselves look better. But God, we do these things because we need you. Lord, help us to be humble as we pursue these things together, Lord. Lord, would your spirit make us more like Jesus. Lord, we ask you to give us this day our daily bread. Lord, we know that our daily bread is Christ alone. It's in in, in His holy name that we pray.